And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. From the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in the name of the Father, the Corinthians in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And such were some of you. Several years ago, I was participating in a truly horrid meeting of clergy. It might surprise you to hear that meetings of clergy are often horrid, but they are often, and indeed sometimes all the time, exactly that. At this particular one, we were being upbraided, you'll be glad to know, not by a bishop, for not volunteering for various tasks that needed to be done in support of this or that. This poor guy was just saying, none of you volunteer for anything, you know, you're a bunch of good-for-nothings. Anyway, it was really terrible. And uh, I'll, I'll spare you the name of the organization because uh, I don't want to scandalize them. Uh, we were reminded of the regular appeals in the newsletter to offer our time in support of various goals, and it was one of those meetings where you can't help but look around you and say, is this guy serious? I was much younger and had less of a grip on my tongue then, and I rose to speak. I said, look, we're parish priests. Those of us who have been around very long know that general appeals don't work. We know that if we want people to do something, we have to call them up and ask them. Take them out for dinner. Take them out for lunch. And say, we've got a wonderful opportunity for you. And this poor guy giving the talk responded, I think under duress, sadly on my part, you're supposed to be mature Christians. Should mature Christians have to be asked? And I replied strongly, yes! <laughs> well, it was more than awkward, and I regret that, but, it, but I was gratified in my flesh to see a few bishops in attendance say immediately, he's exactly right. One of them even went so far as to say, I would hope you would agree that you don't just want people who have the time for these jobs, but people who are truly called to it. I will never forget that moment. It solidified in me the conviction that the way churches often operate, which is to have a list of tasks that need to be done and then look for people to do them, is entirely wrong. My brother has told me that in his company, a company that follows a strict who first and then what policy that this works really well. You think about the people that you have and then you find places where they'll really fit. And I've tried to follow that as much as possible. And the reason for all of this has to do with the calling of God. Paul today in this reading from the first letter to the Corinthians is upbraiding these Christians for their lawsuits and their grudges against one another. To say that they are dysfunctional is something of an understatement. And there's no fun in it at all. They have no one who is wise enough to make judgments among them. They are wronging and defrauding each other, their own brothers. And the reality is that Paul could have said something like, you people need to get back on track. Repent. What he says is actually quite different. He reminds them that they are to judge angels. They are to judge the world. And how on earth, he's asking implicitly, can they judge angels and judge the world if they cannot judge among each other? 
He reminds them, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, such were some of you. I have no illusions. I know that I'm addressing a congregation full of people who either are or used to be idolaters, sexually immoral, thieves, drunkards, revilers, even some swindlers among you. Paul is not saying none of you are this anymore. It is clear that there are swindlers in the Corinthian church. They're defrauding one another. He said as much. It's clear that there are adulterers too. Paul is doing something else. He is reminding them of this prime identity. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Beloved saints, this is the most important thing that I have today to say. The Lord knows all of this. He knows who you are. And yet it is still His will to call you. And you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Not because of your own merit, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Later in this chapter, Paul reminds these Corinthians that the sexual immorality they commit is against their own bodies. Because their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit within them. And they are not their own. They were bought with a price. And it is for this reason that they are called to glorify God in the body. So again, he calls them to know who they have been, whom they have been made by being washed and sanctified. Beloved, you must know this. Which of you has come to confession, confession of the same sins of the flesh again and again and received condemnation by one of the priests of this church? Anyone? Good. No hands. See? It never happens. I've told this story before. I, I once made a confession to a, a very holy bishop. And uh, at the end of the confession, he raised his hand up like this. And I thought he was going to hit me. And you know, the truth of it is, I deserved it. But he said, praise God! And then he just pronounced wonderful blessing. You're a child of God. You are loved. And that's the message that has to be made. Again and again, you are told this despite your many sins. You are a child of God. You are deeply and dearly loved. You are bought with a price. And God is calling you. Take heart. It is the preciousness of the Christian to God that Paul turns his readers they are members of Christ. Shall they be joined to prostitutes being members of Christ? Shall they become one flesh with sin? Shall they be adulterers? Shall they be those who swindle one another? And he says, of course not. In fact, Paul uses stronger language, and if you're a Greek nerd, he says, Meganoito! Which is Greek for something like, hell no! There is a certain lunacy to sin. It is a betrayal about the truth about ourselves. It is a rejection of the holy calling of God to not only be perfect, 
but to be joined to Him, to live in Him, to be truly one flesh in the flesh of Christ. It's telling the catechesis group this morning, God is holy. Do you know what that means? It means He's not like you. It means you're not like Him. It means that if you try to approach Him on your own, you will die. And yet, it is the calling of God to see us participate so fully in His very person, in His very nature, that all the distinctions pass away. And indeed, that is what we come together to do today. To participate in the one body of Christ, not only in His church, but in the Eucharist. This is the reason that in chapter 10 of this letter, which is all about the kind of fractiousness in the church in Corinth, Paul speaks clearly of the Eucharist that it is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And he uses this word, he uses this word, um, fellowship, koinonia, It is to become as Paul writes. And then he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And that is what I want to focus on this morning. The calling of God to holiness. We see this, of course, in the reading from 1 Samuel, the calling of Samuel when he is still a boy serving in the presence of the Lord. He serves among a priesthood that has become anything but holy. The sons of Eli are swindlers. They have committed sins against God. The people of God being served by uh, corrupt priests are not served well. And yet it's the calling of Samuel to proclaim a new day for the Lord's people. We see this in the Gospel reading today when we read of Nathanael's calling. Look at what Jesus says of Nathanael when He asks, how do you know Me? Nathanael says, how do you know Me? And Jesus responds, before Philip called you, Listen, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What does Jesus mean by this? Possibly the best way to read this text is to read it literally. Nathaniel's hanging out under a fig tree, and nobody could see him, and he's just kind of hanging out there, and Jesus sees him when no one else can. That's a perfectly good reading of this text. But there's another reading that I want to point you to. Jews in this time believed that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree. Is it possible that Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, when you were under that tree in the form of your mother and father, Adam and Eve, I knew you then. I think it's possible. I think it's possible that this could be a double meaning that's implicit in the text. That Jesus knows us before we even sinned. And nonetheless, calls. The truth is that the Lord has known us and called us from before the foundations of the world. The Lord never quit calling. Immediately after the fall, what does He do? Well, Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden. He calls them. What does He say? 
Where are you? And you're supposed to laugh at that because you're supposed to say, you know where they are, Lord. He says, where are you? He wants them to respond in honesty. You might know this if you've been a parent and you've had to discipline a child. You know, what's the first thing the kid does? What cookies? Always. And you say, I know what you're doing. And the most powerful thing you can do is you say, you say, listen, I love you still, but I'm calling you to better. That's the answer. Adam and Eve still hiding naked in the garden and he calls them. They're ashamed and he calls them. They think they're less than filled with glory and they are. And he calls them. They're sinners and he calls them. I want to give you this assurance this morning, whether you are in the deep grips of habitual sin or getting free from those sins, the Lord is calling you. Whether you are experiencing the Lord's power and the Lord's grace and the Lord's favor, or more importantly, not. The Lord is calling you. Take heart. The Lord delights in calling the sinner to a greater life as He delighted in calling Samuel, as He delighted in calling Nathaniel, as He delighted in calling Adam and Eve, as He delighted in calling those Corinthian sinners to something greater. The Lord delights in joining sinners to Himself. The Lord knows you in a way that you don't even know yourself and yet... He is calling you. But you might ask, to what? The first thing I must say is that Christian calling is often consumed or confused by being lumped under the, he, under the heading of vocation. Something like what my career will be or whether or not I'll have a wife or a husband or children or whatever it might be. And I want to say that's not wrong. But I want to say that the Lord is not as concerned as you are about what you should be as in a career or marriage or children or the academic life or whatever it might be, but rather with what you should be, which is holy. We see this over and over again in Scripture. The Lord is holy, therefore what? Be holy. The Lord wants you to behold the very vision of God. A vision that angels cannot see. This is why Jesus says, you shall see greater than Nathaniel. You will see angels ascending and descending upon the throne of God. Upon the Son of Man. This is who you and I were made to be. It is the very telos of human life. To be like Jesus. In fact, this is simply what it means to be made in the image of God. It means that we were made to be like Jesus, beholding the very vision of God. So before you and I think, what job should I take? Should I quit my current job and do something else? What school should I go to? Or whom shall I marry? Expecting that they will want to marry me. Or am I going to have kids or not? Or where am I going to go to college? 
Or where am I going to move to? Or what am I going to do when my parents get my grades? got to be clear about this. got to be clear. Abundantly clear. You and I were bought with a price. We are sacred to God even when we're not sacred to ourselves. And it is quite simply a betrayal of that to continue in lives of sin. Our aim must be singular. The pursuit of the kingdom of God and His righteousness, His holiness. And it is this that Nathaniel meets. It's why he says, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He comes. Remember that. Philip says, is it possible that anything good can come out of Nazareth? And what does Philip say? He says, come and see. He calls him again. Come and see. Come and see. Look, it's quite simple. None of the apostles set out to be apostles. None of them set out to become martyrs. None of them set out to become holy. None of them sought out for any of that stuff. They sought instead to know and follow the very One who had the words of eternal life, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Beloved, you've got to get this right. That you won't be able to go wrong vocationally, especially if you seek it within the body of Christ's church in the kind of community that will forget you. How did I mean to say that? In the kind of community that will forge you. I added a T. In the kind of community that will forge you for mature discipleship. Note I didn't say Christ's church. I said Christ's church. You seek out always the holiness of God in the person of Jesus in His church, in the sacraments, and in one another. It is first. This calling of God. So important. So utterly important. And I want to say this off the text. Do not doubt for one second that God is calling you. Do not doubt it. God is calling you. But what is that calling? It is first that you would know Him. And second... It is that you would be the very person you have been made already in the waters of baptism. Washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. These two things go together. And so I want to address them together this morning. To know God is to become holy. No one should ever say, I know God and so I do what I want. I live as I see fit. I even believe as I see fit. No. To know God is to move from the self-centeredness of our own passions and minds and to adopt other-centered ways of holiness and truth. The Christian cannot say, I know God, but you know, the truth is kind of unimportant to me. And let me say, sincerely held opinions, no matter how sincere they are, are not the same thing as the truth. The truth is that which is true, no matter if I want it to be true or not. The Christian must seek the truth in the person of Jesus Christ and in Him crucified. Must live the truth as a living member of the Lord's body, the church, and must do so according to the authority of Scripture and the teaching of the church. That, beloved, is about as sure a way of holiness as there can be. To seek out the very calling that's before us 
in the body of the church. One of the most powerful things I've ever done was in offering myself for ordination. You know, dumb 22-year-old that I was, thinking I have no idea what I, well, I should have thought, I have no idea what I'm getting into. I thought I knew. I did not know. Seeking out the church's calling as well. I remember calling up Bishop Biker and saying, hey, Bishop Biker, I met this wonderful young woman. I want to marry her. And said, well, that depends on what I think. And I am thankful for that. <laughs> I am thankful for that. And he said, well, I need to meet her. And he did. I'm so thankful for that. So abundantly thankful. But I had the guidance of a church in seeking out that calling. And the reality of it is, you do too. The holiness of life that the Lord is calling you to, the holiness that befits knowledge of God, requires, it absolutely requires, the fellowship of the church. And I don't just mean those Christians who happen to be alive in 2021. I mean those who have sought out holiness in ages past. To seek out holiness and the knowledge of God requires fellowship with those who have become before and those who are alive now. It requires relying upon their wisdom as a people who God called in ages past. This is why I want to urge you as we near Lent to put your life in God's hands, to surrender, to pray, Lord, make me holy, holy yours and holy before you, just as the saints of old have done. I'm often reminded of a, of a young French woman, uh, Therese Lisieux, who uh, once wrote in her prayer journal the most power, one of the most powerful things I've ever, I've ever seen anyone even think to pray. She prayed, Lord, I want to love you more than anyone ever has. May that be our prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.